I invite you to turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 2, where we'll continue our series of sermons on this, the first two chapters in Acts. Last time we dealt with the opening 13 verses, where the Spirit comes upon the gathering of 120 believers. They speak in languages. The crowds in Jerusalem, Jewish crowds, they are perplexed. They are wondering about what it all means, some mock. But then we pick up the account in verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy." And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's as far as we'll go this morning. Hopefully next time we will take the next part of the sermon. In response to the preaching of the gospel, we'll sing together Psalm 73, <clears throat> Whom have I in heaven but you, speaking of the Lord. Psalm 73 stanzas 8 and 9, and then together with hymn 48 about the coming of the Spirit, hymn 48 stanzas 2 and 4. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, have you ever wondered about the end times? About the time when our Savior will return on the clouds and all that goes along with that time? On occasion, we hear people make predictions that Jesus will return on such and such a date. And individuals like that, they seem to always attract a fair bit of attention, a number of followers. People will do some extreme things as that date approaches, getting themselves ready because they are so sure that Jesus will return then. So it seems that a lot of people are eager to see the end of the world and the return of Christ. And of course, so are we, right? It's something we pray for. On the other hand, we know that no one can predict the date. We heard Jesus say that in Acts chapter 1, verse 7, no one knows the time of the Son's return. But we do know He is going to return. And we've heard about the signs of the times from other passages, passages of the Bible. So when we read, as we did in our text this morning, before the day of the Lord comes that the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood, that's verse 20, 
when we hear that, we start to wonder. Jesus is coming. How does that work? The sun turning to darkness, the moon to blood. What does that mean? What will it be like to experience that? To even think about the sun being darkened and the moon turning to blood might send a shiver down our spines. Imagine no sunlight. We have a beautiful sunny morning, but imagine it was black when you woke up. There was no sunrise. Imagine that there was no moonlight. That would just about put an end to life on earth, wouldn't it? So it's an unnerving set of images. And as we think about these these huge events, these catastrophic events, we might wonder, what do they even have to do with Pentecost Day? I mean, Peter is talking about the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit has just been poured out by Christ who's ascended to the throne in heaven. The mighty works of God are being proclaimed by all believers and all tongues to all the scattered house of Israel. This is a great day. This is a day of blessing, of joy, of renewal. So why does Peter quote Joel's words about the darkening of the sun and the turning of the moon to blood? Why didn't he just stop quoting at Joel 2 verse 29, which is where the references to the Spirit stop, and just leave off all that bit about the disturbing catastrophe that's coming? Well, because like the Spirit's filling of God's people, that catastrophe also belongs to the last days. And the Spirit of Christ brings both those things. So I preach to you this word of the Lord. The Spirit's arrival ushers us into the last days. This will bring three things. It brings closeness to us. It brings us a word of caution and it brings deep comfort. So closeness, caution, and comfort. Well, as we saw in the previous passage, there was a ton of confusion among the Jewish crowds gathered uh, there in Jerusalem about hearing these Galileans, the apostles were Galileans, speaking their, their own native foreign languages to these crowds of Jews who had repatriated to Jerusalem, and among them were also visitors from afar, Jewish visitors from afar. There's confusion in the crowd. Some also are mocking. And so in our text, Peter stands up among the 11 apostles with the 11, and he begins to explain what's really going on. Now, before we get into that explanation, let's just pause and notice this. It is Peter the apostle who stands up and does the talking. Peter is the leader of these 12 foundation stones. Now, we might take that for granted. We're kind of used to thinking of Peter as as the leader because we're familiar with the rest of the book of Acts. But if you were Peter himself or one of the 11 apostles only a few weeks earlier, you would have found it hard to believe if someone were to tell you, well, Peter is going to be the leader of the restored church, the restored Israel. You might even find it hard to swallow, to think that Peter would be the one to stand up, because it was this same Peter who only weeks earlier had denied Jesus. 
after boasting that he would stay loyal to Jesus to death. So there's already something to learn from this, brothers and sisters. Peter had sinned grievously. He had done something severely hurtful to his Lord, and yet upon his true repentance, the Lord Jesus, what does he do? He restores him gently. He doesn't just restore him to one of the twelve. He restores him to his position of leadership. And you know, brothers, that's a great example. I think of the elders in particular. It's a great example for elders to ponder as the new brothers come in, to ponder how mercy is such a critical tool in the tool belt of the shepherds. When you seek to restore a fallen sinner, which is what elders will do in part, when you seek to restore a fallen brother or sister to his or her place in the family of God, remember mercy. We all make mistakes, plenty of them. We all sin, and doubly so, we need that mercy to be restored. We've all been shown mercy by Christ. Let's show that mercy to those who are straying, and doubly so to those who are re have repented and need to be restored. So Peter is the undisputed leader at this point. He speaks up. What does he do? Well, right away he dismisses the mockery that's going on. He says, listen, they, these people aren't drunk. They, they couldn't possibly be drunk, not this whole group. It's only nine in the morning, third hour of the day. It was roughly nine o'clock in the morning. People certainly did drink wine on the Pentecost feast, but it would have been toward the end of the day, not at the start. That was definitely not a Jewish practice. No, says Peter, the explanation for what, what's going on here, this unprecedented outpouring, this hearing of multiple languages, that is the fulfillment of the ancient prophecy of Joel. Verse 16, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. A little bit later in Peter's sermon, verse 33, he explains this more pointedly. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and he's talking about Jesus, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, Jesus has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. The 120 people, they are not filled with wine, says Peter. They are filled with the Holy Spirit sent to them by the ascended Christ. Well, what does this filling really mean? I received an email last week about Pentecost following last Sunday's sermon with some very good questions about what does it all mean. And the questions boil down to this. Since we know the Holy Spirit was around before Pentecost, what is the difference in the Spirit's work before and after Pentecost. And it's absolutely true. Already in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was very active among God's people. We, we read about Him. We also know that no human could ever repent and believe in, in the Messiah unless the Holy Spirit worked that in their heart. 
But yet there is a difference between pre-Pentecost and post-Pentecost, and we start to see that with the verb that Joel uses, the verb pour out. The Holy Spirit was poured out. It almost sounds like the Holy Spirit is a liquid, but of course it's just a metaphor which makes you think about liquid. In Scripture, we read, for example, that water gets poured out on the ground, blood gets poured out on the altar, and earlier in Joel chapter 2, the storm clouds pour down rain in order to bless the parched land. The sense with that verb to pour out is that the the vessel is empty, the, the clouds empty their rain. And this image of pouring makes, makes a couple of things clear. First, it indicates a tremendous amount of volume. It wasn't a few drops of the Spirit given on Pentecost Day. No, He was poured out. The Lord Jesus gave generously of His Spirit to His people. He gave all that He had to give. The contents of the vessel, so to speak, were empty. I mean, you have just a metaphor, but you understand what I mean. And not only that, the second part of the image is the Spirit, the Spirit will not be taken back up away from God's people. That's something else with the pouring. If you pour water out on the ground, you can't get the water back. If you pour blood out at the altar, you can't get the blood back. If rain clouds drop their rain, the rain doesn't go back up into the cloud, at least not directly in that same way. So the concept is the Holy Spirit is given generously, He's given copiously to God's people, and He's here to stay with us forever. He's poured out. Compare that to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was certainly active among believers, but He did not yet make His home inside believers. Now He does. He was working back then, but now not yet poured out like He is on Pentecost. But because the Lord Jesus has paid for all our sins, because on His ascension He brought the proof for that payment right into the throne room of His Father, now the Lord Jesus is given the gift of the Spirit. Now He's permitted to pour out the Spirit into the hearts of sinners, sinners like you, sinners like me. For that's another aspect to this Pentecost event. Notice who receives the Spirit, as Peter quotes from Joel's prophecy, verse 17. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy." It's a contrast to the Old Testament as well. If you think back to that Old Testament time, the Holy Spirit only ever came to live inside of a very few people, people like Moses, people like Joshua, the 70 elders who helped Moses. Later we can read about the Spirit being given to Samson and to Saul and to David. These were noted in the Bible because being filled with the Spirit was rare. It was exceptional. But now, after Pentecost, it's the norm. This is one of the the magnificent gifts of our ascended Savior. He gives to us, to all of God's people, all believers, 
and, and, and Peter covers this, or Joel covers this, all believers of every race, because Joel says all flesh, every, uh, the, the, whatever gender, sons and daughters, whatever age, young men, old men, whatever station in life, male servants, female servants. So instead of only a few key leaders being filled with the Spirit at certain times, the Holy Spirit now lives in all of God's children. That's what Romans 8 brings across, verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but you are in the Spirit, if the Spirit of God dwells in you. And anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ. Paul is stressing, look, to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ means to be filled with His Spirit. Those two are synonymous. So the Lord Jesus comes as close to you. This is the closeness. He comes as close to you as possible. He lives inside of you. His Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, is inside of you so that He's always going to be with you. And the Spirit will not leave you. You know, if you think back to the Old Testament, He left certain individuals, didn't he? He left Samson. He left King Saul when each of them turned their backs on him. The Holy Spirit will not do that to Christians, to believers. The Spirit will both bring you to faith and He will keep you in the faith. He will make you His temple forever. You are a permanent home of the Holy Spirit. And that's how you'll be able to do your work, brothers, deacons, elders, myself as minister. You and I, we do it through the enabling power of the Spirit of Pentecost who lives in you and lives in me. We can't do it on our own. It would be a massive mistake to try and serve in the church in our own strength, to somehow rely upon our own wisdom and figure it out on our own. We cannot. We simply cannot extend mercy, the mercy of Christ, or shepherd the flock of Christ by our wits, by our charm, by our good business practices. The only way to do this is to be guided by the Lord through His Spirit and His Word. Your two biggest tools, brothers, and mine too, are prayer and Scripture. In the church of Christ, you can only lead as much as you are led. You can only lead as much as you are led by Christ. So, brothers, be a model for the flock, a model of, of men who are indeed saturated in the Spirit, and in the Word. Notice how the Word plays a big role as the Spirit is being poured out. What do all these people do when the Spirit comes upon them? They prophesy. Joel mentions that verb several times. The sons, the daughters, the young, the old men, the male and female servants, they are prophesying. What is that? Well, if you go back to Joel's prop, uh, book and, and to the Old Testament generally, prophecy is always what it means in the Old Testament. It's to bring the Word of God. 
It's to be the spokesman of God. It's revealing, it's God revealing His will through a certain individual. And when Joel mentions dreams and visions, we shouldn't think that's some other uh, thing that's going on. That's actually prophecy as well. It goes back to Numbers 12, verse 6. In Numbers 12, God identifies certain ways in which He reveals His Word to His servants, and they in turn reveal it to His people. So sometimes God would uh, speak directly to a, a prophet, and that prophet would speak it to the people. Sometimes He would show the prophet dreams or visions, like Daniel had that, Zechariah had that, and they in turn would pass on the message to the people. So when you, when you just stand back for a moment, you realize that these 120 believers who are speaking in different languages, being filled with the Spirit of Christ, they were actually prophesying. This isn't just random talk. They are speaking God's Word to God's people. The Spirit came upon them. They prophesied. Luke already told us the basic content of their talk, verse 11. They were speaking about the mighty works of God. Well, if you flesh that out, that must have focused on all that God had just accomplished in the, the birth of Jesus, the suffering, death, resurrection of Christ, and His ascension and exaltation. Those are the mighty works of God that were fresh. That must have been the content of their declaration. Perhaps these people were, were prophesying in the way of appraising God for His mighty works. Think of how Miriam is called a prophetess after the, the Red Sea crossing. And she sang a psalm of praise to God in praise for what he did uh, rescuing the people. David in his psalms often prophesies by way of praise as well. Either way, it was the Holy Spirit speaking through these 120 just like he spoke through Moses or Isaiah or Joel, only with the added miracle of speaking in multiple foreign languages. So prophecy was a big mark of the Holy Spirit. The, the, the Spirit's always connected with the Word of God. And in these early days of the restored church of Israel, uh, prophecy was, was needed, that direct prophecy where new revelation was needed, but the day came when the Holy Spirit saw to it that the revelation of God was finished and written down in the Bible, the New Testament. And since that time, that's where the Word of God has been found, in the canon of Scripture. The Holy Spirit doesn't give new prophecies. He's completed the canon of Scripture. He's completed all His prophetic work in the Bible. Well, what does that mean for us today then? We don't prophesy in that way that Joel did or that these believers did in the day of Pentecost, but we do what Paul exhorts us to do in Ephesians 5, be filled with the Spirit, here's the connection, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. What are those? Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Well, when you look into it, you realize that those three are actually titles found in the book of Psalms. And in the parallel passage in Colossians 3, verse 16, Paul says it a little differently. He says, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, 
teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So the way that you and I keep the prophetic Word of God in mind and in our hearts is to be busy knowing God's Word well. It's to let the Word of God dwell, live in our hearts. It's to read Scripture. It's to meditate on Scripture. It's to memorize Scripture. It's to hide it in our hearts so that the Spirit can bring it out in our lives, in our speaking, in our singing, but also in our living. Are we doing that, brothers and sisters? We've got this precious gift, the the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ living in us full-time, and the Bible right beside us. Are we exercising those gifts? The task is a a beautiful one, but it is a task to drink in the prophetic word and then let it fill our speaking and acting. If that hasn't been our pattern, if you haven't been doing that in your day-to-day life, now's the time to start. Now's the time to make a change. Don't neglect the gift of the Spirit and the gift of the Word. For as wonderful as the Spirit's arrival is, this prophecy about the last days also has a a certain cautionary note for us. Peter begins the quote from Joel's prophecy, verse 17, he says, And in the last days it shall be. When you compare Joel's words... Peter actually makes a little change. Joel simply has, and afterwards. But the inspired Peter wants the audience to understand the more specific time period, and so he borrows a phrase found in other prophecies, uh, speaking of the same time period, and he says, this is the last days. So what that means, brothers and sisters, is that When Christ poured out His Spirit, the last days of the earth were ushered in. The last age of the earth. That's really what the expression means. In God's plan, the world is really divided up into two chunks, two basic periods of time. The former days and the last days, or the latter days. The days before the first coming of the Messiah and the days after His first coming but before His second coming. Well, says Peter, that latter days, that's the time period we're living in right now, ever since the day of Pentecost. The Bible calls it the last days, and that might, that might throw us for a little bit of a loop. We might be thinking then of a period of weeks because he uses the word days, but it's really meant to be a very general expression. It's meant to be non-specific. You and I might better uh, think of, a, of an era or an age, a time period, not just a few days, but a time period. We can sometimes worry about the end times and all that's going to happen, but we need to have it clear in our mind that we are actually living in the end times and have been living in them since Pentecost. And in and of, in and of itself, that, that's actually a, a comfort and a caution 
Let me start with a caution. Not everything about these end times or last days is going to be pleasant. The reception of the Spirit and having a profound new a closeness or intimacy with our Savior, that, that is fantastic in itself. But Peter brings up more sobering issues in verse 19, quoting from Joel, And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. It's images like these that make us nervous. How will it be to live in a time when the sun gives no light and the moon turns to blood? It sounds awful. It sounds scary. And the truth is, these images are meant to send a shiver down our spines. They are words of warning we need to take to heart, meant to caution God's people so that we all give our hearts truly to the Lord. That's the general context throughout Joel's book. Just to sketch it for a minute, Israel had rebelled against her God. God had sent prophet after prophet, but the, Lord had, but the people had refused to listen to those calls to repent so Joel is sent to prophesy of a coming judgment over Israel, a very severe judgment, and he describes it throughout Joel's book. He calls it the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. Now, before Joel came along, Israel knew that expression. They knew about the day of the Lord and the coming time of judgment but they had always thought that the day of the Lord would be bad news for their enemies and good news for them, that the Lord would restore the fallen nation and take vengeance on their enemies. But one of Joel's big points in his book is to drive home to the Israelites that the day of the Lord would be a day of judgment for them too unless they repented. We read about that in Joel 2, verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. So the alarm's going out to Jerusalem. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness, a day of gloom, a day of clouds, a day of thick darkness. Joel is using imagery that's meant to put the fear of God into the hearts of the Israelites. For unless they turn back to their God, it will be a day of disaster for them. The warnings and the cautions, they, they are an act of love from the Lord. He's trying to draw back His rebellious people. And then the Lord holds out that there is a possibility that the judgment will be let up. Verse 12, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. Return. This is the larger context of Joel's prophecy, and that is why Peter 
extends his quotation past the outpouring of the Spirit to include the warning signs of judgment, the warning about the coming of the day of the Lord, for Peter, like Joel, is addressing the same audience, Israel. We saw that last time. Gathered in Jerusalem are Jews from all over the dispersion. These Jews are part of old Israel and they represent old Israel. Old Israel to this point has rejected God and the Messiah. They've even put Him to death. But now this Messiah who reigns in heaven is reaching out through Peter's sermon with a warning call to repent before the day of the Lord falls upon Israel. The warning signs and the disturbing wonders in the sky and on the earth that verse 19 and 20 describe, they're first of all directed toward those Israelites, the Jews. And what's more, all of those signs have already come to pass. Maybe you're thinking, what, what do you mean? How can that be? that these signs have come to pass, the darkening of the sun and the bloodying of the moon. Well, it came to pass in the year A.D. 70 when the Romans sacked Jerusalem. They, they captured the city. They burned it and the temple down. They destroyed the city completely. Well, then how, you, how is that the sun being darkened and the moon being bloodied. Well, here we have to understand that these are images which were never meant to be taken literally. These are symbols. They were used more often by the prophets. They were used to speak of God's coming judgment, particularly on un ungodly nations, and the, the judgment would be in military defeat. Let me give one example from Isaiah 13. In that chapter, the Lord is, is promising and prophesying about coming judgment over Babylon. The punishment happened some centuries after Isaiah spoke about it, and it happened by the military work, the military attack of the Medes and the Persians. We know that from history. We know that from later in the Bible. But listen to how this military defeat is described by Isaiah in chapter 13, verse 9. Behold, the day of the Lord comes. Okay, you understand? That's the same imagery. It comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. You can find another example in Ezekiel 32 where the prophet speaks about the downfall of Egypt in the same imagery. So, the sun and the moon and the stars, these are symbolic of the rulers of the peoples. King, queen, important officials, whatever they might be. So, when the Babylonian king and queen and, and all the, the Babylonian king's wise men were suddenly overthrown by the Medes and the Persians, which they were... Well, how would that appear and impact the citizens of the empire who always looked up to their king, who found their protection under their king, who prospered under that king? All of a sudden, the king is gone. The army is destroyed. 
for citizens of Babylon, that would have been a catastrophe. It would have been like the sun going dark and the moon turning to blood. Well, this then is exactly what happened to the Jews, to the Israelites, the people of God. In the year 70, less than 40 years after this sermon of Peter, all their leaders were snuffed out. All their hopes dashed. Even the temple itself, the very heart and soul of Israel's being, was destroyed. And it's still not rebuilt to this very day. It was truly the last days for Israel. And that's the caution we need to take away from all of this, beloved. You and I don't need to fear the sun, moon, and stars literally falling from the sky. But we do need to fear facing the final day of judgment, the last judgment, without having repented, without having given our heart to Jesus Christ, without having received the gift of forgiveness and the gift of the Holy Spirit. If all we do is just go along in life, even as members of the church, we grow up in the church and we're just going along without actually turning our hearts to the Lord Jesus, it will be lights out for us on the day of the Lord. So don't wait, beloved. Humbly repent today and every day so that you'll be ready when Christ does come back. For that is the great comfort of our text. There is a, an absolutely rock-solid salvation for those who repent. Peter finishes his quotation with that plea at the very end, verse 21. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter will go on in this sermon to stress this point to his fellow Jews, verse 40, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And then a bit later, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Right? This crooked generation is going to be destroyed. Save yourselves. And notice how in Joel's prophecy it is the name of the Lord, four capital letters, the name Yahweh, in which a person may be saved, but here it is the name of the Lord, one capital letter, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is Yahweh in the flesh, and everyone who puts their trust in Jesus will be saved. He's on the throne. He's done the work to save us. That is your comfort and mine in these last days. The end is coming, brothers and sisters. But don't let it terrify you. Jesus, your Lord, will save you from that judgment, from, from all judgment on the day of the Lord because He's already endured all judgment on the day of the cross. And you have the Spirit of Jesus living in you as a deposit and as a seal of that full future salvation. Trust that and go into every tomorrow the Lord gives you without fear, without anxiety, but with bright hope and unshakable peace.
Amen.